Uh, we are in Mark chapter 14, and uh, we have a pretty big section of text to go through today, verses 43 through 72. There's a lot going on. We really have three stories to deal with, um, but I'm excited to dig into it. Let's pray together, and, uh, and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Uh, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that um, even though you're totally independent of your creation, you have no need of us at all. Um, we could all cease to exist and, and your existence would be unaffected. And yet you care and yet you step into time and you took on flesh. Um, you, sent your, you sent your son to take on flesh and, and to die in our place, to live that perfect life that we never could. Um, not only did you do all that, but you preserved it in your word for us to read about it 2,000 years later. And you spoke about it for thousands of years before the fact. So we would know it was your hand that had done it. Um, I pray that we would see that clearly, that we would see your goodness and your mercy to us clearly today. And I pray also we would see ourselves clearly, um, knowing that, that we do not deserve what you have granted to us. We, do, we don't deserve uh, your love, and yet it delights you to show it. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. All right, let's read this, this whole text together. Um, Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. 
And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out in the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Rewind the tape here, analog style. Here we go. All right. Very good. So, a little bit of orientation. We are in the Thursday of the Passion Week. This is the, the day before, or now the night before, Jesus' crucifixion. Um, he's just eaten the Last Supper or the final Passover with his disciples. He has predicted his death and his resurrection. He's predicted um, Peter's denial. He's pr- predicted Judas's betrayal um, and his, his death at the hands of the Gentiles. And now he's gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and, and he's been praying. He told his disciples to stay awake and pray, and they failed, fell asleep. And, and then he says, get up, my betrayer is at hand. And then the next word in very typical Markan style is, and immediately. Mark likes to use this word. Everything is high action in Mark, right? Everything's condensed. He gives you the the bare bones details, and he wants you to see the action because he wants to focus um, not so much on a historical account, though it is historical. He wants to focus in on the key action in the person and work of Jesus. Um, And now we have these three stories, Judas's betrayal, the trial by the chief priests and the betrayal by Peter or the denial by Peter. And what I would like us to see is that in the midst of this chaos um, and in the midst of all this betrayal, when humanity is at their worst, Jesus is still in the hands of his father and God is utterly in control. It's a little bit like uh, when you watch a hockey game live or soccer, for those of you who prefer, um, And, you know, you have a running commentary, right? As the action happens, the commentator says, this is what's happening. Except it's like tuning into that that favorite team of yours game. And in the pregame show, live, they tell you all the highlights that are about to come up in the game. This is is the final score. These are the main penalties. These are the the key um, saves or or shots that, you know, key plays that were made. these are the new records that were set. That's what the book of Mark is just doing for, is just done for us and is doing now. So Jesus has been calling the shots coming in this, this whole week. He's been calling all the shots. This is what's going to happen. Everyone's like, nope, not me. I won't betray you. Oh, could it be me? Um, is it me? Am I going to betray you? Um, I won't deny you. I'll, I'd rather go to jail and die. And, and, uh, and the, the high priests have had their plans foiled over and over again throughout the book of Mark so far, right? They've been debating and trapping Jesus all to no avail. It looks like their plans are shot. But Jesus says their plans will succeed and all my disciples will, will desert me and I'll die but I'll be raised again on the third day. Nobody believes it. 
It's like that pregame show. You're like, how could you know this? The game hasn't happened yet. It's because he's God. It's because he perfectly represents the Father. And he's the prophet of all prophets. He knows what's coming down the pipe. And, and he declares it in advance. And so um, my mission today is to see the difference between ourselves and our God and to trust in him for rescue, um, praising him for his faithfulness when we are unfaithful. So, story number one, Judas's betrayal. In verse 43, we read that while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came and it says one of the 12. We do know who Judas is by this point in the book of Mark. And so why does, why does Mark again remind us he's one of the 12? I think it makes the betrayal just that much worse. It's another reminder. This, isn't, this is the inner circle. This isn't some outsider who comes with an army. This is one of Jesus' closest friends who's been with him throughout his ministry. Um, it really amplifies the betrayal. And it challenges immediately our idea that if you're a Christian, you're part of this inner circle and you'll never fall. If you're a Christian, it's just all about being in the club, Right? It's, it's not about being in the club. It's about hearing Jesus' words and responding to him in faith. It, it, no matter whether you're part of that inner circle or not, whether you come to church every Sunday or you've been baptized, you need to continue in your life to, to see Jesus, to hear from him, and to respond in faith. Judas has all the evidence he needs to know. The same thing that Peter declared, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Judas has seen all the same evidence. He's been with him. He's been in a position of privilege. He was at the Last Supper. So lest we think that our closeness to Jesus or our closeness to religion is somehow um, a guarantee that we don't need to watch out or that we can, now I can stop listening because I've kind of checked that box, right? I, I, uh, I said the prayer or whatever. It, no, it's about staying close to Jesus when things get tough. It's about continuing to stay close to him. And in verse 45, we read that Judas kiss Jesus. So there's a, there's a few things going on here. First of all, a kiss is a common greeting, and it's a, it's a sign of friendship in the first century. We have New, New Testament epistles that say, greet one another with a holy kiss. That wasn't weird. That's just the way people greeted each other as they do in, in Italy and other places around the world today. Um, but it, it is a sign of closeness. And why did they need Judas to, to, to identify Jesus? Well, first of all, it's dark. The, the Lord's Supper has just gone down. They go into the garden, um, and it's dark. And in the book of John, it says they actually brought torches to see by. And so you need somebody, especially when you don't have face, their Facebook profile open, um, and maybe the guards and the soldiers haven't seen this guy before. They can't just pass around a printout, right? So how are you going to ID the guy? Well, you, you get somebody who's on the, on the inside, into in the cover of darkness, is going to be able to identify this guy 100% and identify him by a kiss, and again, it's just, oh, he's twisting the knife now. He's one of the 12 betraying Jesus with a kiss. So in, uh, let's see here, verse, uh, where are we here? All right, so it says here, verse 49, Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. 
So what, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm not some kind of mercenary. I'm not a criminal. I don't do things in the dark. I've been in the temple. Why didn't you seize me then? If you had the opportunity, and if you are in the right, if you really do have legitimate charges to bring against me, you could do this in the daytime. And so he's accusing them of, of wrongfully um, arresting him. And yet he says this really key phrase, let the scriptures be fulfilled. In other words, the play has already been called. The game has already been declared. The things that are written about me in the Old Testament must come true. And so Jesus submits, even though it's to his own harm, he submits to wrongful arrest, to betrayal of a friend, um, and he goes with these men, declaring his innocence and yet submitting to the, uh, the judgment that's coming. This is really a, a prefigurement of exactly what the cross is all about. Jesus, the innocent one, submitting to the wrath of God to bear the punishment for our sins that we deserved so that in the, in the court of God's law, um, we could be dismissed because our fine has been paid. The, the time has been served. There is a mini rebellion here. Did you notice that? The, the disciples kind of have a plan A going in their mind. Like, well, if Jesus gets arrested, I, I brought a sword and I'm going to take, I'm going to make sure I defend him, right? So plan A, we read about here uh, in verse 46, they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by uh, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Uh, in Greek, it's, a, it's what we call a diminutive. It's like an, an earling or something. It's like a, a, a portion of his ear. Uh, a mini ear almost in Greek. Um, so probably not the whole thing, but just a, por- a portion of it. Other gospels mention the miracles that Jesus did in reattaching the ear. He picks it up and just kind of, there you go. Um, Mark doesn't mention it. He's got other, other focuses. Um, and I think his focus is let the scriptures be fulfilled. What scriptures is he talking about exactly? Well, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Isaiah 50, uh, 10 through 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness, which is what, what we're doing in the garden, right? It's dark and has no light. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, in other words, who provide light for yourselves that God would not have you have. You, you, you kindle some kind of other light other than the light that God gives. You're not trusting in the Lord. You're trusting in something else. Who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. God is being sarcastic. Go ahead. Walk by the light of your torches. He says, this you will have from my hand you shall lie down in torment. And in John 18, 3, the same account, we read that Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Sound a little bit like Isaiah 50. You're going to come with torches against God's anointed? Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. This you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Jesus says, I am. And they just like, they're all flattened on the ground with their torches in fulfillment of Isaiah 50. And so Jesus has a lot of scriptures. This is just a sampling, but Jesus knows everything that he's, that the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets. So Jesus has all knowledge. Cain uh, killed Abel. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. David was betrayed by Absalom. Jesus knows all the patterns that he's fulfilling. And Judas comes along and plays the classic villain, right? Betrays his friend. So Judas certainly does not look good. And yet Jesus is faithful. Jesus is all-knowing. And he continues his march forward, as has been prescribed. Next, the disciples. It says in verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Not the soldiers. Who's the all? It would be the disciples because it's in the next it says um, in verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest. So it's not everyone who runs away. It's only the people who care about Jesus. Everyone else sticks around. Um, And there's a very interesting story here. It says a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. So one of the disciples was commando in, in modern terms. Um, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away. It's an odd little story, right? So, I mean, just on the surface, what's sort of the emotion of this? Well, it's desperation, right? So maybe a bit awkward because he's going commando. But now that he's been grabbed by the cloak, what's his commitment to Jesus versus his own life? This guy, right? So he, would, he feels like his life is in danger. What would it take for somebody to... Like for you to tear yourself out of your clothes and run away. What kind of situation is that? Um, he's, he's pretty sure this is, Jesus is not saving anybody here. Jesus is going to be arrested. And if anybody sticks with him, they're also going to be arrested and killed. So there's no, there's no courage of heart that the disciples have been displaying all along. And so Judas, of course, we were used to him being painted in a bad light. But what about all the disciples? So as Jesus is faithfully walking this path, calling the shots ahead of time, Everyone around him falls away. The people that you would expect to be the tightest. The, uh, the crowd, even, in verse 43, it says a crowd came with swords and clubs. Up till this point in the book of Mark, the crowd has always been on Jesus' side. And that verse marks a change. Now the crowd is against him. So it's not only his disciples. It's not, it's not only Judas. It's everyone. And in verse 50, we read that they all abandoned him. And he said this. He said in Mark 14, 27, you will all fall away for it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who is the only faithful one in this passage? Who's the only true one? Well, so far, it's Jesus. And so as we walk through the story, we'll see this over and over. Jesus is the only one who's faithful and true. All of humanity 
um, is not trustworthy. And the other thing that we seek very clearly here that's faithful and true is the word of God being fulfilled step by step, detail by detail. If there's two things so far in the story that you can trust, it's Jesus and the word of God. And Jesus is, of course, the word of God made flesh. What else do we do with this, pic- with this picture of a young man fleeing naked um, through the hills of Gethsemane? Um, I won't spend too much time on this, but tradition says that it's John Mark who wrote the gospel and that this is his way of confessing his sin. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that he was there. It could be. Isn't it interesting, though, that he flees to the mountains and doesn't return for his garment? In light of the fact that Jesus has just prophesied the destruction of the temple, which he says is his flesh, and he says, in those days, flee to the mountains. Do not return for your garment. I'm not sure he quite intended it in this sense, though. (laughs) Um, It's somewhat ironic. Um, Jesus has told them that in those last days, they should keep awake. Because uh, if they don't, he might come and find them sleeping. We've seen this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prophesied that brother will deliver brother to death, which we've just seen in the betrayal of of Judas. He says to flee to the mountains. He says, don't come back for for your garment. Then he says, you will bear witness before kings and be beaten in synagogues, something Jesus is just about to fulfill. Um, He says, you never know when he's going to come back. He might come back in the morning when the rooster crows at his second coming, um, which is about to happen. And then he also prophesies that in those last days, the sun will be darkened, which is another event that took place at the crucifixion. The sun was blackened. And so Jesus, yes, he's speaking in Mark 13. We've had great sermons on this. He's speaking about a a future time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and looking yet further, I believe, to, uh, to the end times. But he begins already fulfilling all of these signs in the destruction of his own temple, his own flesh. He begins to fulfill all of these end times things so he can foreshadow and pattern what's coming. It's all first displayed in him, then in the destruction of Jerusalem, and then finally in the end times. God skips a stone, um, as Nino said, and, uh, and, and it bounces a few times so that you can kind of get the trajectory and see that what we see in Jesus is going to be fulfilled um, when he wraps everything up as well. <clears throat> Let's go to Amos 2. I believe the Old Testament also has spoken of people running away naked. First of all, in Genesis 3, at the fall of man, they hide from God in a garden naked. They flee for their lives because they were told the day of you, you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And they're convinced they will die. They feel the shame and they flee naked. Um, but in Amos 2... Starting in verse six, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver. Judas's betrayal um, foreshadowed in the unrighteous actions of Israel as a nation previously. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. Verse seven, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Abandoning the afflicted as the disciples all flee from Jesus. Going down to verse 11. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? Jesus, of course, the fulfillment of all prophets. And in Deuteronomy 18, uh, Jesus said, uh, sorry, Moses said that God will raise up a prophet like, like me from among your brethren. You should listen to everything that he commands you. 
And this is Jesus raised up as the ultimate prophet. In verse 13, behold, I will press you down in your place. Of course, we are at the Mount of Olives where there were olive presses all around through the mountain. Um, Jesus is about to be pressed down in their place. And in verse 16, he who is stout of heart among them, uh, among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Even the strongest among you are going to run away naked. Um, I think that in Amos, he's looking back to the garden and using that imagery. Um, but I think that there are a few reasons for us to think that this running away naked is really a picture of humanity, isn't it? I mean, if you or I were there, are we stout of heart? Are, are we more faithful than the disciples? Are we closer to Jesus than the disciples? Have we seen more of Jesus than the disciples? Have we made bigger promises to Jesus than the disciples? What sets us apart? What makes us different than Adam and Eve in the garden running away naked? Or, or this young man in the book of Mark? Or these people that were prophesied about in the book of Amos? Are you any different? Can, can, can anyone say yes? Can, can you offer any evidence that, that you're closer, more faithful? I think that all of us need to see ourselves, not just as the, some weirdo who went commando, but more theologically than that, we need to see that all of humanity, when confronted with hard times, we will flee from the Lord. That's what your heart will want you to do every time. You're going to want to preserve your life. You're going to want to run away. And you'll be ashamed for it. Um, Jesus, the polar opposite, stays the course as it's written about him. So everything is unfolding as the Old Testament and Christ's words predicted. What is dependable in this story? The depravity of mankind, as well as the truth and faithfulness of God. Now, finally, we are in verse 53. We have a death sentence from Israel's leadership. In verse 53, it says, They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. These are the, this is the who's who of Israel, right? This is everybody. The scribes, they know the, they know the word of God backwards and forwards. The chief priests and, and the, the, the other priests, everybody who's anybody religiously in Israel who would be expected to be able to recognize the Messiah, interpret the word, they're all gathered around and they're going to decide what to do with Jesus. And Peter, at verse 54, had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, at a distance because he doesn't want to get caught, right? And he was sitting there with the guards and warming himself at the fire. What's the problem? In, in the plot here, the, the plot thickens. Peter is now in a place where his face can be recognized in the glow of a fire, right? And so he's, he's like, I am cold. Uh, I'm just going to warm myself up at the fire and hopefully nobody will see. Now, Peter has declared, I will go to jail or even to death for you. How's he going to do? And the irony um, in, in all of this is that uh, he's taken down by a servant girl. We're going to get to that later. But so he's sitting there, um, hoping not to get noticed. And in verse 55, it says, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. You notice the verdict has been decided. We just don't know what the crime is yet. Did you get that? So they still don't have a case. They're looking for witnesses. 
And, and people stand up and bear false witness saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Of course, Jesus did say this, but he was referring to his own body. What's the problem with this accusation? So let's say that the Jews go to Pilate and they say, this man is going to destroy this whole temple that took Herod like years and decades to build with stones that even modern equipment can't even move. These are huge stones. We don't know how they got them in the wall. And, and this guy's going to destroy the temple. And in three days, he's going to build it up again. And we're worried about that. So you believe him? You think this man has the power to tear down all of these stones and rebuild them in three days? Or are we just dealing with a lunatic? That would be Pilate's response. This is not a credible accusation unless you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, unless you believe essentially that he's God. And so to accuse him of, of attempting to destroy the temple in three days would be an admission of his, of his deity. You can't even accuse him of that. Uh, so what are we going to do? Uh, verses... Uh, 60 and following, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So approach number two, maybe we can get him to self-incriminate, right? Get him to say something in his defense that will, that will trip him up and it'll actually be a good enough reason to accuse him in the first place. Um, this, is, this is not uncommon, even, even, in, uh, even in politics today, Right? Follow an impeachment trial or two. Um, it's like maybe maybe during the trial something will come out that that is going to be incriminating, um, and that's their approach. But Jesus in verse sixty one remains silent and makes no answer. And then they get to the crux of the issue. And really, this is what Mark wants you to focus on: Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Isn't that the key? That's the whole thing. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, and he's claiming to be the Son of God. And the high priest cuts to the chase. In Mark 1.1, if we go back there, Mark's thesis statement at the beginning of his paper, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark's central claim. And Jesus is going to be tried on this claim. How, what a fitting climax to the book of Mark. Mark says, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and this is his gospel. And the chief priests say, and we accuse you of claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. What is Jesus going to say? He says, I am. <laughs> going to Exodus 3. This is what, the way that the Lord introduced himself to Moses. He revealed it as his personal name. I am. And Jesus lays it out. He says, I am, in words I'm sure they couldn't have missed. This is not just an admission of guilt. This is a claim of divinity. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, I am God's right hand man. I'm his son. I'm, I'm tight with the Father. And I'm the one who he's going to send. He's referencing, um, of course, Daniel 7. Uh, verse 13 to 14. And this, this person, this son of man, comes from the ancient of days himself and is his chosen one. It's a claim to be both divine and the Messiah in one sentence. I am, and you will see me, the son of man, coming in power. And then the high priest in verse 63, he tears his garments. 
This is, this is something that they used to do out of an emotional response in the ancient world, and it became tradition that whenever you heard blasphemy or whenever you um, had somebody die in the family, this is what you would do. And the high priest, though, is he sad or is he happy? So normally you would tear your, your clothes when you're really distraught and sad. But notice what he says immediately after that. What further witness do we need? <laughs> Cha-ching, right? I, I love this. I love this blasphemy because it means I can finally get Jesus killed. He's not sad at all. He's like, finally, we got him to self-incriminate. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Some spit on him to cover his face uh, and, and struck him saying, prophesy. Jesus is being treated like, um, uh, like an unrighteous Davidic king. In 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant. David is promised that his sons will sit on the throne forever. And unlike Saul, who when he sinned, he was kicked off the throne, his line was cut off. David's line will persist forever. And though his sons sin, they will be disciplined with the rods of men, but they will not be removed. The line is going to continue. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate Davidic king to come. And, of course, it becomes confusing then. If he is a son of David, why is he being beaten with the rods of men? Because in 2 Samuel 7, it says, And when he sins, I will beat him with the rods of men. And the answer is, he is being beaten because of sin. Just not his sin. It's, it's our sin. So Jesus is fulfilling the Davidic covenant um, by taking up this eternal throne and ascending to the throne after being beaten with the rods of men um, to bring us all into his kingdom with him. Finally, they say prophesy. This is incredibly ironic. Prophesy? I told you everything that was going to happen before it happened. What's happening while Jesus is, is being accused and tried is Peter's out in the courtyard warming himself by a fire, denying Christ, and then the rooster crows. Prophecy is literally being fulfilled right behind Jesus in the courtyard. Jesus' own words about Peter's denial are being fulfilled as they're trying him and they're saying, prophesy, prophesy. Has he not prophesied? Did Judas not betray him? Is he not about to die and be raised from, from the dead? Um, it's, it's incredibly ironic. And really, it's, a, it's just an accusation that you are no true prophet. And yet, through the betrayal of Judas, Peter's denial, and his death and resurrection, everything is unfolding as the Old Testament and Christ's words predicted. What is dependable in this story? What can you rely on? Human leadership? The experts? The disciples? No. The depravity and blindness of mankind and the truth and faithfulness of God. Finally, Peter's denials. Verse 66. Peter was below in the courtyard. Uh, the courtyard was, was two levels at least. So there'd be an upper level, uh, kind of a terrace, and then something lower down, and then a gate. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. She recognizes his face. God has told Peter through Jesus that, that he will deny him. And who will he use to sift Peter to, to test his courage, it's going to be a servant girl. And in the ancient world, those two, two adjectives together, um, servant and female, made you pretty much the bottom of the totem pole, right? Your, your, your testimony couldn't hold up in the court of law. 
your, your role was to, to serve. You couldn't be a landowner. You're, the, you're at the bottom rung. Can Peter withstand a servant girl? No. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. He denies it. I don't know or understand what you mean. So he's like, Peter's, his first declaration, I have no knowledge and I have no understanding. I, I don't know anything. I don't know Jesus. I don't know anything about him. I don't know what it means to follow him. I certainly never promised to die for him. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been following him around. Sell, I didn't sell everything that I had. I didn't leave my nets and follow him. Uh, I don't know anything. Great. Good, good job, Peter. Uh, then he leaves the fire because he doesn't want to keep being recognized, right? So he goes and he, he goes more towards the gate, out towards the darkness. And, and it, the, the picture is, is a beautiful one and a tragic one at the same time. He's leaving, um, he's leaving the fire and in doing so, he's moving to the darkness. He's leaving warmth and light. And the way that the courtyard is structured, Jesus is up on the upper terrace. Peter is down here by the fire. And as he moves further from light, he moves further from Christ. He's going out, he's starting to leave through the gate. But he still wants to hang out. He still wants to be just, just far enough away to see without getting caught. And so now he's in the, in the darkness. And then the rooster crows once. In verse 69, the servant girl saw him. Now, she, now she's seen his face. She can recognize him in the darkness. She saw him at the gate and she accuses him again. He denies it. And in his denial, he, rev- he shows his cards because he has a Galilean accent. So even in the darkness, as he defends himself against this servant girl who's followed him there, he gives himself away, and now the bystanders all know he's a Galilean. So he begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, saying, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And by invoking a curse or swearing, it's not what you think of in the modern sense you can read about invoking a curse on yourself in the Old Testament. They say, may, may the Lord do so to me and more also if I know this man. So may, may God bring down curses on me if I'm not telling the truth, um, is how a, a Hebrew would invoke curses on themselves and swear. So he, he likely invokes the Lord's name to deny the Lord. And then immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered. So, the rooster crows, and it says Peter remembered, which means at, up until then he had not remembered. I think, if we're reading that right, he was just on cruise control. He was in fear mode. And he, even though the rooster already crowed once, he didn't even hear it. That's called hardness of heart. That's called deafness. Being so fearing for your own life, so willing to deny Christ, that even the rooster crowing once is not enough to turn you aside, not enough to make you remember. And so God in his mercy, the rooster crows a second time and reaches into Peter's heart and softens it. And then he remembers. And, and the response is immediate. He broke down and wept. Peter failed Jesus at every point. Could, could Christ love and accept such a man? In 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23, Peter recalls these scenes. He says that Jesus stayed silent. He did not return um, insult for scorn, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
And Peter himself in Mark 16 will be the first one to receive the news of the resurrection. That's God's grace. And unless we think that we are Jesus in this story, the one who does what is right, the one who is in the know, the one who does what's expected and and perseveres, um, I think we need to hear Mark's heart here. Why is it that Jesus' crucifixion is surrounded by humans who do nothing but deny and flee, who lack faith, who have hardened hearts? Um, Jesus, ironically, is the only true witness in the whole scene. Peter can't witness to Jesus. The, The witnesses that they call are all false. Jesus himself and his words are the only thing that stands true. How can we summarize this text? I would say that the best efforts of pious people are brought to repentance. The 12, the disciples, the religious leaders of God's chosen people, Peter himself, are brought to repentance. So as I look around today, I I presume you're all pious people. You're coming to church on a Sunday. Um, How do we respond? Are we better than all of these? And if not, how can we have hope? It's a dismal message. If the message is only humanity sucks, we're never going to get it right. Each one of us is fallen and depraved. The end? Or is there hope? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, um, presents all of humanity as dead in sin, unable to do anything that's not tainted by varying degrees of sin and rebellion. Not that everything we do is pure sin, but everything we do is tainted by some measure of self-interest and unbelief. Um, Jesus alone in Mark is presented as the faithful one, the saving one. He shows immeasurable kindness and grace. Where would Paul in Ephesians 2 get such theology of grace shown to dead people, spiritually speaking? Um, could Could it be that he's been reading Mark 14, that he knows what went down at the events of the cross, and he knows that Jesus stands out as a bright and shining light, offering grace? It says in Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. In Mark, that has been every bit as true of Peter as it has been of the world. Every bit as true of every disciple as it was the world. That includes me and you. We're no different. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, And we were by nature children of wrath, born this way by our actions, agreeing that this is good that we were born this way. And it says, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Jesus bringing about redemption, even while everyone falls away, before anyone loved him, he loved them. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't just take Peter back. He makes them the pillar of the church, gives them an inheritance in heaven forever to to sit and enjoy God's presence and to revel in the stories of God's grace um, that he's played out in human history to, to glorify God together. Peter is not just 
kind of brought back in the club. He's restored and blessed. He has an inheritance. So that, in verse 7, that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about in heaven. What did Jesus do for you when you fell away? How did he save you from your being dead in trespasses and sins? How is it that Jesus was the only true and faithful one all the way through your life? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine reading Mark 14, thinking that salvation is of man's doing? (laughs) That's not what we hear in Mark 14. We see that man is trying everything he can do to undo the salvation that Jesus is faithfully bringing. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you become a believer, do you start getting everything right all the time? Mm -mm. But God has made some works for you. He's prepared them. He's laid them out in front of you that you can walk in them. He gives you a response of gratitude to say, Lord, what? I can't do anything for you. I know but you've done so much for me. Is there something that I could do to express my gratitude for this gift of grace? So my questions in closing are, have you really grappled with what it means to not be better than every character in this story? That's hard work. To not let your heart out from under that condemnation until you've really understood it. That prepares the way for fully trusting in the only righteous and faithful one. Are you living in the immeasurable grace that's extended to you every day um, based on the 100% certainty of his word when he promised to make you alive together with Christ based on his kindness alone? If we are no better than the most pious people in Israel or the closest disciples of Jesus, our only hope is in his grace and mercy. And we praise the Lord. This is exactly what was brought about in the events we just read about. He opens his mercy and grace to you today on the grounds, not of your deserving actions or character, but of the death of another in your place, fully paying the penalty of your sins so that God will remember your sins no more. Do you believe him? Will you trust him? Thank you.